Hi, my name is Rob Goddard of Cloverdale Baptist Church, and I am joined here with Clint Humphrey of Calvary Grace and Jeff Eastwood of Grace Baptist Church. And we're discussing the topic of the gagging of God. The gagging of God is a title of D.A. Carson's book that he published over 20 years ago that we believe still has much relevance for the church today, and so we wanted to discuss this. Uh, maybe we just start by talking about the book. What, what did the book teach? What's the big picture overview of this book? And and then we'll talk a little bit about its application to ministry in Canada in 2017. Yeah, to begin with, I guess, uh, to think about the, the book itself, um, one of the big things that Carson tackled with this massive book of 640 pages is uh, this idea of postmodernism. And uh, I, I think in the summary, as, as Carson analyzed this postmodernism, both from an intellectual level and also uh, at a society level, um, he was able to kind of look at it pretty objectively, I think. Uh, he was able to, it was this philosophy, uh, and he's kind of picking it apart, and he's able to see, well, what's, what's good about it, but also what's bad about it? And uh, he, he kind of concluded, there was, there was one line there that kind of, for me, it kind of summarized the whole book. And, and he just said that there's kind of a light touch and, and a heavy hand when it comes to this idea of postmodernism. Um, the light touch, he said, is when postmodernism is gently applied. And what it does when it's gently applied, it uh, has these right questions and right challenges against the arrogance of modernism. Now, modernism was that kind of movement coming out of the, the 1800s that, you know, everything's scientifically defined and, you know, very mechanistic and rationalistic. And, and postmodernism rightly questioned even the arrogance of all of that. So that's when it has kind of that gentle, gentle application, that light touch. But then there's also then this heavy-handedness that postmodernism can have. And, and Carson said that when it's ruthlessly applied, then it nurtures what he calls a new hubris, a new pride. Uh, and, and it also, he said, it, it actually kind of t takes agnosticism, which is this kind of attitude that, you know, the truth might be out there, but you can't know it. And, and it kind of puts that on a pedestal. And so that's what happens when postmodernism is ruthlessly applied. Basically, it's the pride and arrogance that says, you can't know anything. And how dare you claim that to have you know, truth or how dare you claim to be able to speak anything correctly. And so, that, so for me, just seeing in the overarch of 640 pages, I mean, hey, it's a little bit like reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's just a massive, massive book. Um, but, but there's kind of that light touch and the heavy hand. And in our day now, um, this, this sense of doubt is so prevalent. Everybody doubts everything. Um, and it's so prevalent. I mean, we can't even decide what is news and what is fake news. Uh, so I think the book is extremely relevant for us today. Uh, and we see, I would say this heavy handed application, this, ruthless application of postmodernism that's not just at a philosophical level, but is actually just in the air we breathe now. Everybody's filled with doubt and suspicion, and that's just everybody's default setting. And I think then the result, is, as Carson kind of laid out, 
is that it leads to despair. It kills our motivation. Uh, it extinguishes our hope. And then in response to that, kind of the latter part of his book, it's then just offering then the gospel of Jesus Christ to offer hope uh, even, even to this generation. So that's kind of be kind of my overarching view of kind of the book as a whole. So what you're saying, Clint, is if you had written the book, you could have written it in about 30 pages. <laughs> yeah, that's my attention span. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that was an excellent summary of the book. Uh, Jeff, you got anything you'd add to that? Um, not really necessarily. Uh, excellent uh, summation. I would just say I, I heard an illustration one time. It's not original with me very much. Very little is. But uh, somebody said once that our culture is kind of like a vase or a vase or however you want to pronounce the word uh, full of flowers. And they like the scent of the flowers, but they want the flowers themselves removed. And when you remove the flowers from the vase, um, the scent lingers for a time, but eventually it will dissipate because the flowers are gone. And so basically, remove God from our culture, but have the things that God brings to our culture remain. We like law and order. We like um, love and, and kindness and, and those kind of you know concepts. Um, but we don't want God to be the source and the foundation of them. And uh, what I found interesting about uh, Carson's take, and Don is nothing if he's not thorough, but this is written, like I said, over 20 years ago, and he saw something, and not in like a you know futuristic read the tarot cards way, but he saw something in postmodernism I don't know other guys saw, um, what was what Clint referred to this heavy-handed postmodernism, where the only absolute truth is that there isn't any, um, you know, we're the only, where everything is tolerated except perceived intolerance. And of course, Don has another book on that, but um, that would be my only sort of take. I, I really, the, the cultural impact of postmodernism and uh, where we're at now, what Don didn't necessarily see, I don't know anybody could, but I see in our culture is the level of anger. Mm. Um, postmodernism now has risen to this. You can't even have civil dif discourse anymore. If you disagree with me, uh, I will label you anything that I think appropriate, you know, to tear you down. And, um, you know, the, so the, the idea, as Clint said, that there is no absolute truth and how dare you say that there is, has led us to a culture in which there's just a lot of, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of, of anger uh, in the air. I think probably more so to our neighbors to the south at the current time. Our Canadian context seems to be a bit more polite. Um, but there's, there's just, yeah, the, the reality of sitting down and disagreeing but still respecting each other seems to be a lost art. Yeah, and I think Carson's point, as you both have said, is that the reason it's a lost art is if we lose the idea of absolute truth, if we lose the idea of uh, there being one meta narrative and everything is equally true or equally false, and anybody who claims anything different, uh, they become the enemy. And I think that's created an environment that's very difficult to have discussions that are almost sane. Uh, as we've understood this book, I've often said to our, our people here out in British Columbia, if you disagree with D.A. Carson, you just got to figure out where you're wrong. <laughs> as we've uh, tried to understand this book, we've, we've given it a brief summary. Uh, really, what we want to ask now is, is Canada this pluralistic culture? We've, we've already, I think, addressed that. We've all said it is. It's a, an extreme pluralism that we see. Uh, I think both 
empirically and philosophically. And, and so we've moved into that as a, a badge of honor. In, in what ways, and I think, Clint, you've addressed this a little bit, in what ways is this a good thing? In what ways is this a, a bad thing? How, how do we understand this as Christians as we've shifted away from modernism uh, into this new era, perhaps beyond this new era? But, but how are we to see this? Is it good? Is it bad? In what ways is it good? In what ways is it bad? Well, I think, uh, you know, with the pluralism positively, of course, in Canada, we call ourselves a mosaic and, you know, we're all these pieces that are put together, but not not the melting pot melted together like in the U.S. And and one of the positives I think um, all of us see is that in Canada, ethnic diversity is welcome rather than feared. Mm. And uh, we, I think all of us have benefited from the cross-pollinization between cultures. I mean, when I think about my neighbors, um, I, get hair, I get my hair cut from a Lebanese Muslim, and I buy carrots from a Hutterite colony, and I sing hymns with a family from Hyderabad, India. And, and just that, those different cultures that each of us can speak to, whether you're in an urban center in Canada or even in a rural place, uh, there's much more ethnic diversity and that so that the benefit of being able to uh, just get outside of yourself and learn from different people I think that's a real beneficial thing and even even in terms of churches that are ethnically diverse then they're able to learn more about Christian expression through different uh, in different cultural ways but then of course I guess the flip side and we've already talked about it, the negative is that there's just that, that resistance to truths that that all people are summoned to acknowledge and believe. So that in Canada, I mean, if you if you make um, if you make a truth claim, if you keep it kind of tribal, you keep it small, then that's okay. But as soon as you make a claim that's universal for everybody, then you're treated as being arrogant and unwelcome. Mm. And and I think then that's. That's kind of then that ruthless application of the postmodernism that we see. And, and that's the negative thing I, I think we see across the board. Yeah, I just I, I think it's helpful if pluralism is to be defined primarily as diversity, because as somebody has said, you know, asking somebody about the culture that they are part of is like asking a fish about the water in the fish tank. Mm. It's just part of the environment. So how do you come outside of that? And it's very helpful to have other cultures to say, okay, you know, th this is what is cultural. Because oftentimes what we do, we think it's the right way to do it. But when another culture does it, that's their culture. And we mm. don't realize that we, we actually have a, a, a culture as well. And uh, a president of a seminary that I used to attend said that they took trips to Ukraine. And the Bible passes through customs unaltered. When they go to the mm. Ukraine and when they come back from the Ukraine, but the beauty is that there's, as Clint said, cultural expression of Christianity in the Ukraine that we don't have here, and it's mutually beneficial. So if pluralism is is diversity, ethnic or otherwise, I think that's the body of Christ. And as we see in Revelation at the end, people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation are going to be praising God around the throne. So that's a good thing. But as Carson pointed out, as Clint said ably, that heavy-handed postmodernism, they've basically taken the, the concept of equality and squished it to mean sameness. So every everybody is the same, and it's not just that you know everybody has a place at the table, and you know and these are ideas that we're going to discuss. 
to see whether or not these are true or not. It's just that everybody's the same and, and everybody is, is of, everything is of equal value. Um, and I don't know actually if it was um, Keller and the Reason for God or Kevin DeYoung, or, but it's an old illustration. You know, it's the, the blind guys at the elephant and they're touching a part of the elephant. And, you know, one guy has an ear and says, well, this is a fan. And the guy has a tail. This is a rope. And, and sort of the, the, the moral of that story is that we're all just sort of stumbling along. We each have a piece of the pie and, and none of us really know what's going on. But um, as I think it was Keller points out, there's a couple things wrong with that. It might have been Kevin DeYoung. Um, you know, one is it presupposes a narrator that knows that it's an elephant. So there is a truth there that, that, that each of these blind guys doesn't have. And then at the end of it, if the elephant could speak and say, hey, guys, I'm an elephant, <laughs> and, and God has spoken, there is truth. And I think the, the whole middle section of, of the gagging of God is about that, 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 that hermeneutic and mm-hmm. where we've strayed by not sticking to, you know, to the truth claims of the Word of God. But uh, as Carson points out of the gagging of God, it's no longer appropriate to assume that people have the foundation that they may once had a gospel conversation has to start at genesis it can't start in the gospels yeah you're getting ahead of us now jeff we are going sorry (laughs) (laughs) and actually that illustration is in the gagging of god book so i i think it's really relevant that you bring it up and and talk about the elephant in the room and perspectives. I think I would agree with both of you. For me, where it's very helpful is we used to have the idea as North Americans, and I think as Canadians, we fit into this in submission to the U.S., probably uh, angst in our submission, but still in submission to the U.S., that we had it right and everybody else had it wrong. And so when we went and did missions, we were bringing the culture as well as the gospel. And I think what this has allowed us to do is to step back and say, both from an experiential level as people come to us, but also as we go elsewhere, what what matters is the truth of the gospel and how it's carried out in context is uh, something we're free to do as long as it's not in conflict with what the Word of God says. And again, the book addresses that as well, looks at some of the spiritism and mysticism going on and addresses how that fits into Christianity. And I think it's important that we have the absolute truth to measure uh, the consequence of our working that out in culture and what that looks like. For, for me, I think the greatest strength of pluralism is the humility that it reminds us we need to have mm-hmm. in our interaction with one another, in our an, interaction with the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and so it gives us that uh, reality check that we don't know all things, that we have been raised in a culture, that we are swimming in this pond, and it's what's normal to us, even though historically and around the world it may not be normal. And it gives us the ability to evaluate that with integrity, or at least seek to evaluate that with integrity. I think the danger, and, and you guys have both said it, but the, the danger of it is if you remove absolute truth, you really you remove the ability to evaluate. You remove the ability to respect and to have differences, and it creates chaos. And, and so I think the danger is real. I think we're living in it. I think one of you had said earlier, we, we can see it maybe more profoundly south of the border, but I, I do think it's here as well. When you, when you address some of the moral issues that we address, uh, it's certainly influencing us. And so I guess that leads to the, the next question uh, that I would like us to interact on, and, and that's particularly today. So in 2017, in Canada, how does pluralism influence us, the, the Christian church? And how can we as pastors uh, shepherd in such a way that our people can live uh, in a healthy way in this environment? And also, how, how can we reach out with the gospel in this in this area in terms of teaching our 
our flocks, uh, the people that attend church, the people that believe in the absolute authority of Scripture, how can we help them to live in healthy ways in a culture that disagrees so radically with them? I, I think uh, one of the things that we see with pluralism is, uh, and in particular with the church and what we've been driving at, is that there's a real resistance to all authority. And so then when that comes into the church, uh, e- even, even professing Christians uh, who have then this, they're breathing this air of anti-authority, it's very easy for the church to respond in the way that Jesus condemned in Mark 10, namely to lord it over people. And, and so we have to be very careful pastorally of, of not responding to a kind of an anti-authority emphasis by by using authority wrongly. But what we need to do, I think, is is assert the lordship of Jesus Christ. And and when we see the lordship of Jesus Christ, we see then there's there's both a personal and a universal authority. I mean, it's not just an abstract authority. It's the person of Jesus Christ, but he has lordship over all. And, uh, and of course, then remembering that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, so I think in the church, uh, pastorally, I think uh, just practically then, I think it means then uh, maybe first of all, it would be to, to highlight the claims that Jesus makes on us, uh, you know, that, that he does make claims. And then along with that, that the, he gives promises. So like, for example, at the end of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, he gives us commands and, and that we're supposed to do them. But then he also promises that he'll be with us to the end of the age. And I think having that combination of the authority of the Lordship of Christ overall, and yet also his provision for us, highlighting those in the church, I think is really important in this pluralism. Um, I think this uh, second point would be that um, really upholding the scriptures as the source of authority for everyone. And uh, I think, you know, Gospel Coalition Canada, certainly that's a centerpiece is upholding the scriptures. But I think even in our churches, really practically, uh, we need to really get back to the Bible in our church services, just having the Bible in the church services, having the Bible inform our prayers, having the Bible inform our sharing of the gospel, having the Bible shaping our minds and hearts. Um, and Carson, throughout the book, he really stressed, of course, like the Bible storyline. And uh, we still need to help biblically illiterate people to get that storyline so that then there's this context for them to understand even the, the saving lordship of Christ. Um, and then I think the third pastoral point that maybe I'd make uh, drawing from Carson is, is Carson's great great line from one of his chapters was drawing lines when drawing lines is rude. And, and there are just so many things in the church where people are confused. Um, issues of gender and sexuality uh, where, you know, drawing biblical lines about, about binary sexes, you know, that's, that's viewed as rude or worse, but being able to teach people what the scriptures say and what they don't say. Uh, I think issues like eternal judgment, uh, again, drawing biblical lines about the wrath to come, I mean, that's viewed as rude. And yet, you know, to help people in our churches to be able to grapple with the scripture's authority. And then I think a big one, just pastorally speaking, is 
is just stressing the summons for all people to believe, to believe the gospel. They're called to believe in Jesus. And he's the one who said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And and just, you know, that summons that there's this invitation to come to Christ, but there's also this, this summoning aspect that, that he has authority to call you to believe. And I think, I think kind of highlighting those, that's certainly an application I took from the book for today. I think, I think very helpful and, and overflows into the next question we're going to ask, but uh, we should give a chance for Jeff and Rob to sure. interact on this. Yeah, too. yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. Jeff, anything you would add? Yeah, just uh, from where I sit, one is even that this book was written, I think, speaks to me because, you know, Don had some questions, and as he writes in the introduction, that kind of led to the production of, of this volume. And in the context that I grew up in, certainly cultural engagement was tantamount to heresy. Um, you know, we don't, mm. it's not about the culture around us. You know, we need the gospel. And in fact, we will sort of um, cloister ourselves out of the culture and become sort of a, a church culture under our own. Separatism was was a very sort of big thing. And I always kind of, you know, was amused at that at, at ministry in Ontario. We had some Mennonites that would drive by the church building in their horses and buggies um, after church service. And, um, you know, there were people in my church that, you know, wanted to go back to the 1950s um, and have it remain there. And uh, you had the Mennonites from, you know, the 1850s or 1750s. And, and it was the same philosophy, the same idea. It just that in our context, it didn't look as weird. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it did to us, though, Jeff. So looking <laughs> in, it was. <laughs> well, it wasn't as weird to us, I guess. And I think, I think that's such a huge thing for us as the church, not cultural engagement in the sense of what's the culture doing and how can we be relevant to it, but in the sense that we understand the culture that we're bringing the gospel to. And when we set ourselves apart to the point where we don't have an understanding of the culture that we're speaking to, um, it, it's going to actually, I won't prohibit gospel advancement, but it's certainly going to hinder it. And uh, so I, I'm just thankful that, that, you know, Don felt the need to write this book in the first place. And I think we can, it's very, very helpful. And others are doing it as well. So for us uh, here, here in Charlottetown, it is that sense that, we, we've been kind of known as the church that doesn't do much in the community um, in our past. We're sort of, you know, come to us, but, but we're not going to come out to you. And uh, I think that is part of the, what needs to change. Um, and then, of course, understanding, you know, the culture um, uh, of those around us. Uh, love is a big part of the culture, but it's been redefined to mean affirmation. And uh, we have to be careful that we know the language that's being spoken. So when someone says, listen, I just need to love me, what they mean by that is you need to affirm that whatever I do and whatever I say is okay. And that's actually the opposite of love, but that's what they mean by it. I see this all the time, you know, in picket signs or uh, well, that's, that's not that's not Canadians. That must have been coming from somewhere else. But um, in just a conversation, just, you know, Facebook feeds, hey, man, Jesus was all about love. It's about love. It's about love. But they've redefined that word to mean, like I said, to mean affirmation, and that's that's not, you know, that's not that's, uh, not what that word means. So, mm. you know, and, and I at the end of the book or towards the end, um, uh, Carson talks about a, a difference between Orwell's view of the future in 1984 and Huxley's view in a Brave New mm. World, and I thought that was kind of interesting because Orwell's got this dystopian sort of, you know, view of of, of this oppressive, almost communist or Marxist. Uh, you know, outside force, 
Whereas Huxley says it, it's not going to need that because um, we're going to do it to ourselves. Mm. Um, he says Orwell feared there would be those who would ban books. Huxley feared that there would be no reason to ban a book because no one would want to read one. <laughs> um, Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared that uh, who would give us so much information would be reduced to passivity and egoism. And at the end, in short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And, and is there a way to get people away from, you know, all of the entertainments and, and, and the, the, just the mass amount of stuff that's swirling out there and, and even get them to focus? Uh, you know, I have a hard time in my church to get, you know, people to read, uh, read books and, and just to engage the text. And it's an uphill battle and uh, one that we have to know is a very real battle. Uh, so, yeah, just understanding the culture, I think that's, that's, that's helpful. Um, and just, you know, being aware of not being sucked into the lesser elements, certainly, but, um, but to be aware is, is very important. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, I, think, I think I would agree with both of you, and I think next time I would like to speak first so that I sound smart as well, that we can all be <laughs> equals in it. Uh, pastorally, for, for me, I, I think it reminds us that the gospel impacts all that we are and all that we have, that relationship with Jesus. And, and we're called to be in the world and not of the world. And I think, Jeff, you, you mm. reminded us that there are many that are still pulling out and, and cloistering. Mm. Uh, I think the opposite is also true. And, and we see, at least in British Columbia, uh, we see many of our people living like the world. Not not that they're not on on uh, Sunday morning you know, worship teams or in church or doing what they should do on Sundays. But if you were to analyze very carefully the difference between them and the world around them, perhaps in what they say, perhaps, and what they say they believe, but mm. the life we are living as Christians in Canada seems to be very similar, evangelical Christians. And, and so I think it's a reminder mm. to us that we swim in this world, and the world impacts us whether we want it to or not. And, and so I think for us as pastors, we, we want to see our people um, so given in their relationship to Christ, to his word, to their devotion to him and following him. I think, Clint, you mentioned this in terms of lordship, that that they see the world as an opportunity to display the greatness of Christ. They see the world as an opportunity to share the gospel and live out their faith, that, they're, mm-hmm. that we are in the world but not of the world. I think from a pastoral perspective, too, it, it's helpful to share with our people our own humility when we approach life and issues that we are not as pastors, the absolute understanders or the absolute mm. rulers of our flock, mm. but we're there to serve, we're there to, mm. to search and mm. submit with them. And I think that's also, uh, pluralism has helped us with that, but I think it's also very, very helpful. I, I think for me, the, the key is I was interacting with the book and then as interacting with our our church here in, in Cloverdale. My key goal would be in Galatians 4.19, to have Christ formed in our people. And then to have our people in the world, but not of the world, influencing the world. And so as both of you have said very well, uh, we do need to understand what's going on in the world around us because it does impact us. It does impact our people. We also more profoundly need to know what it means to to be like Jesus in this culture and and to stand firm, to be humble, to show and display self-sacrificial love in such a way that that's what we're known for as a church, even as we're accused of doing wrong. Even as we're accused of being unloving, they they see our lavish love. And so when we deal with issues, uh, abortion or uh, euthanasia, or you start this list and it's getting longer and longer, it seems all of the time, uh, mm-hmm. transgender issues, homosexual issues, homosexuality, I think that they see in us not only a willingness to stand firm on what the Word of God says and not bend, but also to display 
a self-sacrificial love for the people caught up in the different issues, the different sins, mm-hmm. in such a Absolutely. way that we are known as a church for our love. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's so important. The, the last question we want to ask, and we are running out of time, and our, our ruler, Wyatt, has told us we only have an hour, so it gives us about <laughs> two minutes. Uh, what... What way can we use this book to help us understand how best to reach out with the gospel in a community that believes in radical pluralism, in a, a community that, that is so caught up in this that any claim of exclusive truth is seen as an abomination? How do we reach out with the gospel? Maybe you can summarize what Carson has taught, or maybe you just want to answer pastorally. How do we, how do we equip our people? How do we personally reach out into the Canadian world that is so caught up in this? I, I think uh, Carson points to the use of the Bible storyline and being familiar with the Bible storyline so that you can engage in this culture by introducing them to what the whole sweep of Scripture is saying, the general arc of the Scriptures that puts then the good news in context. And I think for Christians, just local church folks, to be able to be familiar with that so that they can then share the good news of Jesus Christ in a very natural and regular and informal way. And Carson gives lots of great practical examples of ways to do evangelism. Uh, As another more recent writer has put it, it's gospel speech. And if we can just talk about the gospel amongst Christians and be in the habit of that, then that can spill over then and be able to do what used to be called friendship evangelism, just being a friend with people. And, And if we can have that outreach, we can offer hope to people with the gospel and even as they are trapped in in the despair of not knowing anything not 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 knowing anything sure and and very confused in their lives so i think then and and uh, just being able to hold forth the gospel with that biblical sweep and trust in the supernatural power of the gospel to work in people's hearts and bring deliverance did you want to go next rob no, you go ahead. I, I, I like being last. It allows me to display my humility. Um, I, I just, you know, for me, I, I think it's, it's, um, it has created an environment in which people are actually more open to conversation about topics that used to be taboo. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you never used to talk about, you know, politics or religion, but uh, <laughs> there seems to be uh, a more open sense because of pluralism. Um, mm-hmm. Now, oftentimes people are looking to add that to what they already have in a synchristic way. You know, oh, I got a little bit over there. Oh, the Hindu and you know, and and in a, in a Jewish context or a, a Muslim context, I'll put this all together and kind of come up with a worldview. But people are more open, I have found, to talking about religious things than they have been in the past. So I do think that that has opened the door to that conversation. Where the conversation, you know, can end is as we, you know, we've we've seen is when you start talking about the absolute truth of, of Scripture. And I do think that's where Carson's helpful, and as Clint pointed out, it's tied to history. I, I think you can say to people, listen, you know, that's just, you know, white Europeans that wrote this or, or that have this view or, you know, deconstruct everything and, and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, there are things that are true and real. And, and Christianity is richly tied to actual events, that verifiable things that that happen um and it's not just an ideology it's a person it's jesus christ the righteous who actually incarnated became one of us lived among us and then died and then rose again 
and, and and to to stumble over the resurrection how do you how do you get past that re, that reality and uh, you know even if people appeal to science or these things they have to deal with the reality of the the, the death burial and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ and so gently and consistently and over time um, you know have those conversations I do think too just to make sure that our people are as prepared as they can be um, oftentimes young people grow up in the church and they believe something because their pastor told them or their you know their, their parents told them we haven't done as good of a job as perhaps we should to sort of walk through some of the harder parts of life in scripture and they get into university and take a first year biology course and all of a sudden abandon their faith and so not that we have to you know have uh, you know creation seminars you know every week and those kind of things but and uh, where there's differences of opinion on Genesis as well but th just to talk through some of the realities the presence of evil in the world suffering um, attacks that that you know that uh, that people have against uh, God because the new atheism is not I don't believe in God the new atheism is I've checked out your God and he's a moral monster mm. it's a different brand of atheism when Hitchens was was alive and with us and Dawkins and some of these guys it's it's a it's a different type and 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 to prepare our people more so private conversation i think the best way to prepare our people is as we've said is the regular expository preaching of the word of god um but in private conversation and with our young people just to just to let them know that their faith is real it's substantial it's substantive i should say that there's weight to it it's not just something that we've we've come up with it's tied to reality to truth claims to history uh, so I think that's that's part of where we need to bring our people and people that don't yet believe to that place. Yeah, I think, for, again, from both of you, so helpful, uh, the dependence we have on God for all of this and then the, the clarity around our own worldview and the gospel. Uh, Carson's book covers Acts 17, I think, very well. In fact, as good as I've seen it covered, so many use that passage for uh, the ability to compromise rather than the ability to share the gospel in a pluralistic culture, and I think Carson handles that very well. I think for me, the the key is that we equip our people to be living uh, not in anger but in joy and love, firmly mm -hmm. convicted uh, in terms of what the Bible teaches, but also uh, lavishly loving in a self-sacrificial mm -hmm. way. So mm -hmm. that we're in the world and not of the world, and abstaining from the evil desires at war against our soul, if you want to take First Peter 2, 11 and 12, living such good lives among other Canadians that though they may accuse us of doing wrong, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he returns. And so yes. if we could make our our churches so healthy that when you come, you're equipped, you, you submit fully to the lordship of Jesus, you experience his love so richly that you become one who loves like him uh, as an imitator of God, you re-engage in the world around you in a way that you're imaging Jesus to them. And in a way that you know the gospel so clearly in its storyline that you can share it in a profound, spirit-filled way. And so I think that the challenge remains the same. We need to be like Jesus to a world that is not. And we need to be in that world in a way that brings the message through how we live and what we share. So that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will see many come to know him as Lord and Savior. I mean, our, our longing, and I think we could say this for the Gospel Coalition Canada, is to see a renewal of delight in God in the churches of Canada, and then to see the gospel flourish in this nation yeah. and see uh, God respected and revered and esteemed uh, from mm -hmm. from sea to shining sea. Well, thank you very much to Clint and Jeff from across Canada, and Rob coming to you here from British Columbia. We're, we're covering the major regions of Canada. I think that's very profound. 
Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. I have learned a lot and enjoyed spending this time with you, and I hope those who listen to this will enjoy it as well. Uh, coming to you on behalf of the Gospel Coalition Canada, thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day.